the Center for Interfaith Cooperation in Indianapolis, Indiana, is dedicated to building peaceful dialogue among and between different faith communities with the help of a diverse board of faith leaders who have incredible stories that inform their interfaith work. Today we have Brian Shivers. Welcome, Brian. Hi, thank you. Awesome. So we're so glad to have you. If you wouldn't mind starting by just telling us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to the CIC. Sure. So I have lived in Indianapolis for almost 30 years. I uh, was born and raised in Marion, Indiana, which is a smaller city in Grant County, about 60 miles north of Indianapolis. Um, I moved down here for a job at Second Presbyterian Church here in town. Um, and started working with the CIC um, following my ordination in 2011 um, and really was drawn to it because of some important conversations that I thought they were having um, as an as a organization that was just starting out in 2012 I believe and um, and I wanted to be a part of those conversations I felt like the there was a lot of important work being done around uh, what does it mean to live in a, a pluralistic society and how do we honor those voices, elevate those voices, make sure that voices other than just those of the dominant culture are listened to and heard mm -hmm. and valued. Um, and I think that the biggest piece for me was education around other faiths. And so all of that stuff drew me in. Um, I had also done some reading and some work with Ibu Patel from Chicago who works who founded the Interfaith Youth Corps oh, out there cool. and uh, was really drawn to his work. He self-identifies as a an American, no, a, a, an Indian, he's from India, um, American Muslim. Hmm. And his work has been transformative, not just in the Chicagoland area, but all around the country. He is an interfaith pioneer for sure. And his work really pushed me into um, understanding that a part of my own Christian faith has to be about interfaith awareness. I can't just live in my Christian bubble mm -hmm. and I have to learn about other faiths. And one of his lines that really um, impacted me um, at a conference I was at where he was the keynote speaker, there were a lot of young people around and a young man who was Muslim asked him, so are you asking me to not be a Muslim? And Ibu said, I'm actually asking you to do the exact opposite. I'm asking you to be the best Muslim you can be. Hmm. And then he singled out a young woman who was Jewish in the audience and said, and I'm asking her to be the best Jew she can be. And then he pointed at a Christian young person and said, and I'm asking him to be the best Christian he can be. Because only in elevating the best of what it is that our faith traditions hold can we do this work together? We will begin to understand the value of one another's faith systems if we are working toward being the best of what our individual faiths um, are. And that's what I really appreciate about the CIC, mm -hmm. yeah. is that it's not just honoring, it's not just um, getting to know one another on a personal level, it's actually celebrating the best of the faith traditions, pushing each individual back into their own faith system yeah. to understand the best of it too. Um, I think the other thing that draws me is I work with young people a lot, so people from the age of middle school through college, and that's my primary programmatic responsibility at the church. 
And what I've said often is uh, young people live interfaith every day if they live in a big city. Mm-hmm. And so helping them um, not just ignore the faith questions, but to actually have those conversations with their friends. Mm-hmm to deepen their own understanding of what it means to be a person of faith and also to understand their own faith better. Yeah. Um, so that makes that's, sense. yeah, that's what I, that's why. And once I got involved, um, really deeply in interfaith work, my own faith has grown by my interactions with my friends from uh, faith traditions that I would, I don't think I would have ever had friends in. Right sought this out so so you see interfaith as or your religion informing interfaith and the importance of this happening yes yes i do and i think that one of the one of the misunderstandings from my perspective of the beginning of christianity is that it was this um really clean uh very isolated it almost came out of nothing i know roots in judaism but almost just magically appeared with Hmm. the person of Jesus. And we forget that it had a cultural context. Yeah. And we also forget that it had uh, deep, deep Jewish roots, Mm -hmm. that Jesus was born, lived, died as a Jew. Um, And uh, so in in its own identity, it is interfaith. And there are these amazing stories sprinkled throughout, especially the Gospels of these incredible interfaith interactions that happen that we kind of have sanitized hmm. because we want to see them only through the lens of, well, this person then became a Christian. It never says that. It, Interesting. It, so there, there are incredible interactions, including right at the very beginning with the birth narrative of Jesus, the wise people that come to visit um, Jesus and Mary and Joseph uh, when Jesus probably was around two years old. It never says they become followers of Jesus. Interesting. They're a Zoroastrian, probably. They come from Persia. So they go home as Persian Zoroastrians mm-hmm. who have met Jesus as an infant. Huh. And so if we can stop being threatened by the existence of these other faiths um, and understand that there's some really cool stories within the texts. Um, one of my favorites is uh, um, a God-fearing Roman uh, what does that mean, mm-hmm. right? Comes to Jesus because he knows Jesus can heal. And he asks Jesus to heal. And Jesus does because of the man's faith. But it then never says that the man then became a follower of Jesus. It's just this healing narrative that's in the middle of the text. Right. So likely he continued to do whatever it was he was doing. That was God-fearing. I like that interpretation. So it's just interesting. interesting. Trying to read the texts without these lenses that we bring, Mm -hmm. it's impossible to do, but trying to at least acknowledge the lenses that we bring and say, okay, what actually are the words that are on the page? And let them speak for themselves. You start to see some like, wow, that's that's amazing. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, the transformation I once thought happened didn't actually happen in the text. Right. So looking at kind of some Christian exclusive claims where it's like this is the way to get to heaven or the afterlife. How do you reconcile that with like the conversion and evangelical peace with interfaith? Yeah. Well, my 
own personal faith roots are, um, I always say I have a checkered religious past. So I grew up um, until I was 13 as an Assembly of God um, person. <laughs> My grandfather was an Assembly of God pastor for 60 years. And I was in the Assembly of God church until I was about 13. And then my family stopped going to church for a short time and then ended up going to a Wesleyan church, which is so far theologically removed from um, that those roots in Pentecostalism hmm. and charismatic Pentecostalism to go then to Wesleyan church, which is a holiness movement um, branch off of the Methodist church. Um, and that's really where I, both of those have incredible importance to me in my own faith development and my learning about uh, what it meant to be a person of faith. Um, so I'm very careful as I talk about that because I honor those faith systems um, so deeply um, in my own faith expression. As I started getting older, I, f I realized that certain things for me, just as a human, my own personhood, didn't fit anymore. And um, at, when I went to college, I started working at a Presbyterian church and I found a faith home. Mm -hmm. uh, that I really felt like this made sense to me with its emphasis on God as the primary actor, our call as a response um, to that activity. God is the acting on our behalf always, even if we don't acknowledge it. So it's all very theocentric, um, God, making, God being the primary mover. Um, and so that all plays actually into this understanding that, I, that I've gained over the years of interfaith work and what does that statement that you use, Jesus is the way, actually mean? And um, I think Richard Rohr, who is doing a lot of incredible work around this right now in helping uh, people understand that there's an idea of Jesus as the person, but also what does it mean if when we declare Jesus as Christ? Because those are, that's not his name, that's a title that's given to him. Okay. And... Christ as an idea that's bigger than just Jesus. I've heard something similar to that. Yeah, okay. and so he calls it the cosmic Christ. He's not the only one that talks about this, but um, what does it mean that God has always been acting for the salvation of humanity? That in the person of Jesus, what we see is that story enfleshed, literally, in a way that had never been enfleshed before. Interesting. Um, and that salvation is not just for those. Jesus didn't come just to save those who would give assent to Jesus's Christness, hmm. but Jesus came as an expression of God's uh, desire to save all things, um, not just one individual human mm -hmm. life. And so that's a that's a broader view of what it is that Jesus came to do. So not just humanity either. You think of all creation. That God's salvific act or God's saving, that was a really deep theological word there. Sorry. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, God's saving all of all of all things um, instead of just God saving Brian Shivers. Right. Um, so okay. my salvation is tied to yours and is also tied to the earth and is also tied to people who live around the world. Okay. Um, we are being saved together. Hmm, I like that perspective. So, so you could find Christ in other religions sure as well. Sure enough, yeah. Actually, one of my favorite interfaith stories is that around that very thing. Um, we had a CIC board retreat, 
and I was seated at table with Dr. Patel and a different Patel than the one I mentioned earlier. Um, and Dr. Patel is Hindu and um, said to me, in my tradition, we have a story about Jesus. And, and then he said, but I don't want to offend you. And I said, I want, I want to hear. So he ended up telling me this beautiful story about in, I believe, southwestern India in a very small part of India. They have a tradition that after the story of the Gospels end, that Jesus didn't die, that Jesus moved with his family to southeastern, southwestern Asia or India and um, was basically a shaman. Really? And so they have temples in southwestern India that have Jesus as an avatar. And he's huh. called Jesus Christ, Christos. Uh-huh. Uh, so he's called Jesus the Christ. And one of the beautiful things about that is it actually deepened my understanding of Jesus in a way that I had never understood Jesus before. I'd never heard that story. And I was actually, I said, thanks, you, you've actually helped me. Mm -hmm. um, you didn't offend me. You helped my faith develop even deeper. Um, and so the understanding that anywhere there is mercy, anywhere there is justice, anywhere there um, people are serving the poor, um, helping the needy, that text that Jesus reads from Isaiah in Luke chapter 4, where he stands up in the synagogue and says, sight, blind receive sight, um, good news is preached to the poor, and it's the year of the Lord's favor. That passage, where that passage is in flesh, I believe there is the Christ. Hmm. Um, so That's yeah. so neat. What are some other stories like that? That's a cool story, but maybe within your own faith journey and in the CIC that stand out to you? So interfaith engagement stories like that? Or any faith-related yeah. stories. Um, so uh, another one from, um, and I would encourage anybody that lives in Indianapolis to do this, another one from the Hindu tradition. Um, it, the Hindu temple that's on the east side of Indianapolis mm -hmm. is one of the most beautiful buildings um, that I've ever seen. And it is one of a kind. There is no temple like it in the world. And the reason that it's so unique is because the um, people that live in Indianapolis that practice Hinduism are very diverse. And so they represent different regions of Hinduism. And so they couldn't just make a temple that represented one of those regions. Interesting, they had to yeah. make a temple that represented all of the regions. So inside the temple, there are small um, shrines inside the temple. And this is the only temple where you will see some of those shrines next to each other because huh. in other parts of the world, there's no need to have that kind of diversity. And the thing that really moved me was the building of the temple was a religious activity. Mm. So it wasn't just people building a building. They have artisans that come. They uh, aren't allowed to bring anything to the work site except for their tools. So anything that is used to build the building has to be used, that it has to be local. Um, they, ha they can't bring any of their um, forms that they use for uh, different figures. They can't bring any of that with them. They have to make new ones huh. because it's this activity of religious devotion. Okay, cool. And so what, how that strikes me is it makes me think about my own religious devotion and do I have that same level right. of religious devotion? Mm -hmm. Can I say, I, I think I ebb and flow. I think sometimes I would say, 
yeah, I have a pretty deep level of religious devotion, but there are a lot of times where I absolutely do not. And that is, that's beautiful to me to have Mm -hmm. those kind of interactions where you see how someone else expresses their faith in such a devoted way. They're not perfect, but it's a beautiful act of devotion. Yeah. Um, So that word has been, I think, reemphasized to me. I see it in when I go to uh, a mosque and participate in prayer with um, some of my Muslim brothers and sisters. It's, it's powerful to see that, you know, this is an activity that they do five times a day and that, um, that there's a physical part Mm-hmm. more to devotion the, to their per- to yeah and it's just it's just powerful and it's not a it's not a conviction necessarily on my own faith it's not convicting me of anything it's actually driving me to discover what are the ways that I can also practice religious devotion mm-hmm. um, and the other thing that I would say is I've never been to um, either here or abroad I've done I've done both to a, and I'm sure there are places that would be that would not want me there but I've never been to a space where I felt unwelcomed. And that is powerful to me. Yeah. Um, they don't ask me what I believe. They don't ask me what in the world I'm doing there. They don't ask me, well, they might ask me why I showed up, but that it's not a, well, why are you here? It's not in, a, in that accusatory way. It's in a, uh, why, why have you come and how can we help you? Mm-hmm. And it, it's just a powerful, powerful witness. and. You think about some of the acts of violence that have been committed against some of our friends from other faith traditions and some of our friends from the Christian faith tradition. Let's not miss that. There have been a lot of those too. Charlottesville, you can lift those up. But they have, they would have every right to question a, a white man showing up at right. one of their oh, religious yeah. services. And yet they don't. And that is a, an incredible um, and powerful uh, witness to me of their own faith and the depth of their own faith that they can move beyond what might be a preconceived idea of what I might be there to do true to actually just to invite me in to participate mm-hmm. and um, it's powerful cool yeah how have you been able to incorporate inner faith and in what you've learned into your own congregation that's a great question um, my, I think the biggest thing uh, and I'll use it the, um, the most recent example with the, the tragedy that happened in New Zealand um, in Christchurch. And I think that we can't miss the irony, irony of yeah. the name. <laughs> and the, yeah. Um, it's almost like a double tragedy in some ways. But um, one of the things that we provided for, especially the young people of the congregation, was ways in which they could act to support their Muslim friends hmm. and the Muslim community in Indianapolis. So because of my interfaith work, I know people that are in these different mosques and different uh, Muslim organizations. So I was able to, or we were able to, give out addresses and contact information for places that we knew that the students could go visit with their families. And so instead of organizing some big thing to let's all go, which I think is a really powerful statement. Um, I know that uh, IHC and Bethel Zedek recently had a, um, joined um, one of the mosques in town for a prayer service, um, I think last Friday um, mm-hmm. or Saturday. Um, what we decided to do was let's empower people to do that when they can with their families 
and um, and we will do the other as well, but we wanna make sure that people know, you can do this anytime. You don't need us to organize it. Um, we want you to experience your Muslim neighbors in a way that is really authentic and organic for you and your family. Um, because it, uh, there's also a safety if we go in numbers, mm. right? If If we bring 15 people with us, I can feel a little like, oh, it's True. a little less of a risk than if I just go and show up and and make myself vulnerable, which is, I think, one of the very first steps of interfaith, being willing to step into that awkwardness. I like that. Yeah. And be okay with that vulnerability. Mm -hmm. um, and because let's face it, coming from a Christian tradition, when for myself, when are the times that I would feel vulnerable for being a Christian? in the United States. There, there really aren't moments like that. Yeah, and it's a privilege. So, yeah, it is a privilege. And so in order for me to understand better, I will never understand fully, but in order for me to understand better what it, it is like to be a person that is not in the majority, but is in the minority, I need to be willing to take risks. I need to be willing to be uncomfortable. I mm -hmm. need to be willing to step in it sometimes say the wrong thing and be corrected and not valid, yeah. and not get defensive because i've been corrected but to be able to apologize and learn mm -hmm. from okay so the next time i know not to say x because right. that is offensive and learn why it's offensive that's on me that's not on that's not on my muslim neighbor that's not on my jewish neighbor that's not on anybody else to help me to figure that out i got to figure that out and so that's been, uh, that's kind of the, the model we're trying to set for people is step into that uncomfortableness. Um, somebody says, own your awkward. Like I, I love that. <laughs> like step into that, um, and be okay with that and be willing to go in with a sense of humility and learn something. Yeah. Um, I know I've just been angry and frustrated and I know being a Christian myself, I'm not directly affected as you've said, but the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh and then this New Zealand massacre. Do you believe that these instances of going forward and putting yourself out there is the way forward to eradicate some of this Islamophobia or anti-Semitism? Yeah. And by the way, I will say that um, my friends at the JCRC um, will say that acts of anti-Semitism are on the rise around the country. They hear about and around the world but uh, also here in the United States, um, they hear about them every day. Um, my friend Lindsay Mintz um, says she gets emails nearly daily about Gosh. an anti-Semitic act um, somewhere in the United States. And so this is not an abstract idea. Right. This is happening to our friends, to our neighbors now. And yes, I do. I do believe that education um, getting close proximity is a really important thing. I think it's an undervalued, um, word and idea in our culture that the way that we begin to, um, become people who understand others is by proximity, being close to one another. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't just mean physical closeness that, although that's really valuable, it means also an emotional closeness, a, an ability to um, suspend as much as we can. We all come with biases, we, I know that. Um, but to suspend those long enough for me to hear, all of that is about proximity. And once we can 
value that as, as much as we value anything else. Um, there, it is harder for me to hate you if I see you eye to eye. True. If you're a friend. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it is harder for me to also, uh, generalize you hmm. and, or to generalize quote unquote people like you. Right. Mm -hmm. I hate that phrase. Um, and how, how can you begin to, Oh no, this is a human. Like there's, I see a face. So when you say, when someone says Muslim people, I, I have faces that appear in my head of friends of mine, right. right? Faces and names. I know their stories. I know the names of their children. Like I can't, I can no longer allow someone to cast hate at groups of people that I, I have people that I love that are part of that mm -hmm. community. I can't stand by any longer. Mm -hmm. And so Lindsay has this line that she uses. I've heard her say it probably five or six times um, where she says, be ready with your story. And what she means is she's asking people like us, people from the dominant faith tradition. Um, for, for me, the dominant race for, for me as a male of that dominant race in the United States, all of those things, right? Um, all those privileges be ready with your defense so that when you hear an anti-Semitic phrase come out of someone's mouth or you see an act of anti-Semitism, you are ready to step in for your friends. And she said, um, don't wait for me to do it because I have to do it every day. Mm. I live this life. And so what I need you to do is be ready, have your story ready. Because if we don't have it ready, when that moment comes, we won't do anything. We'll just feed into it. Yeah. And our silence then becomes complicity, right? Right. And so that's, I, I think that that is a motivating fact factor for me in interfaith work. And I also believe it is deeply rooted in my faith tradition. Hmm. If I just look at the person of, of Jesus, what did he do? over and over again in the stories that we have from the gospels we see him getting close to people people that were marginalized peoples right as well as people who were hated peoples that weren't necessarily marginalized they were just a hated people group right they were uh tax collectors and things like that he he drew near them right not just in ideas but actually physically close to them drew close to them um, stories of him touching people. Those are things that we miss. Um, I recently got a chance to hear Barbara Brown Taylor speak. And one of the things that she talked about is that we have, we have lost our language about body hmm. embodiment in our faith. And that's such a powerful thing. And if we can get back to that, I think we be also begin to disarm some of this other stuff that's out there. Um, because again, if we're close, if I can see you eye to eye. Yeah, makes a lot of difference. It makes a, a lot of difference. Has there been any pushback within your congregation or maybe within the Christian community as a whole to this interfaith mentality or getting to know somebody that's totally different? Because I know there is, what I've experienced is that there are these like exclusive claims, like that's the other and right. we're 
following the way so we need to stay right. straight right um, yeah I think um, I haven't really experienced it in my own congregation um, but you do experience it especially online uh, you experience it uh, um, that's one of the curses of our social media I think is that it invites anybody and everybody to have an opinion on everything and um, and then when you when you add your voice in there you're inviting that as well yeah um, so there have been people that have pushed back and um, there I do not have to give up I, my own understanding of my Christian faith is I don't have to give up my faith claims about who Jesus is um, about what God is doing in the world I don't have to give those things up in order to be working in her faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people misunderstand interfaith work when they think that somehow you're being asked to give those things up. Um, that actually is a disservice to true interfaith work. It becomes this wishy-washy nothingness, really. Mm-hmm if we're not also willing to have the conversations about our differences. And that's the beautiful thing again about the word proximity is in proximity, I can't just stand at a distance and claim that you are wrong. I now have to enter into a dialogue and be able to understand where it is that I'm coming from. Mm -hmm. Right. And at the end of the day, when we have those conversations, neither of us is going to cast dispersions at the other one's faith if we're having these honest conversations, but we're going to walk away from them still fully in our faith systems. Um, So yeah, there are people that push back on it. There's different understandings. Um, I think one of our conversations in faith communities has to be, have to be around uh, truth claims and, Um, You can have truth claims without denying the truth claims of someone else. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing I can never have is your life experience. Mm -hmm. So even though we come from very similar faith traditions, we are at some point going to have a different truth claim. Right. We can't have the same one. It's impossible. And so... I think that that if if we just can realize that that's true in our everyday life, um, mm-hmm. then the threat, the 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 uh, idea of threat, is it, it becomes less, right. um, and so you you're able then to enter into those conversations honestly and with some vulnerability, and with some humility, and with the idea that I'm here to not just defend my faith, which has been something that the Christian church has talked about a lot. How do you defend your faith? Mm-hmm. Well, what if that wasn't the conversation anymore? I don't, why do I have to defend my faith? I don't have to defend it. I can describe it. And then I can listen to someone else's description of theirs. And mm-hmm. I'm not threatened by that. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think we've got to get to a different place. Um, I like whole. that perspective a lot. It's kind of, I've been reading a lot of different theologians on interfaith and they describe this relative absolute, that your absolute is absolute, but yeah. it's relative to everybody else's. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, and, and I think it's, and how, do, how do you answer the question, how big is God, right? And are you going to be, um, am I going to be, I'll personalize it, am I going to be arrogant enough in my belief system that I believe that I have the divine completely figured out 
in my own faith, um, I find that to be a frightening concept to think that I will ever have the divine Same. figured out. <laughs> yeah. And, and I hope that it's never true. Um, I'm pretty confident it won't ever be true. Um, because the theology is one of those fields that the deeper you get in, the more questions you have, <laughs> which is a, a powerful thing. I love it. I think it reveals something about what it is that we're doing. True, yeah. Um, there are more mysteries. Uh, it's like peeling an onion. Um, once you get in, it's more complex than you ever thought it was. <laughs> uh, and I, I love that about it. And so the image that I often use is the difference between holding faith with a clenched fist or an open hand. Hmm. And if you hold your faith with a clenched fist, nothing gets in and nothing gets out. And as I stand before you, I look like I'm a threat. If I can hold my faith with an open hand, I, it's not that I'm not holding anything. I am actually holding it so that I can receive and I can offer, and it's much more generous. And if I stand before you with an open hand, there's an invitation. True. Yeah. Right? Even in our culture, it's a handshake, right? It's a welcome with an open hand. And so um, I think that that image for me has really helped me understand that if I can loosen my grip on my faith so that I don't choke the very life out of it, that not only does that allow me room to grow, but it also allows uh, me to relax on other people's truth claims. Hmm. Mm -hmm. um, so. Great. So to summarize yeah. <laughs> inner faith to yes. you in a succinct couple sentences, what does that mean? Interfaith to me means seeing people for who they are and knowing that their experience is completely different than mine and also understanding that the God in whom I have come to believe not only loves that but is revealed in it. I like that. Awesome. Thank yeah. you so much for being here, Brian. Thanks for the invitation. It's a great conversation. It. And please stay tuned for more stories from different board members. Visit the Center for InterfaithCooperation.org for more information and ways to get involved. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned.